Department of Tampa, and this is Background Briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the two big bills Biden is trying to get passed, Infrastructure and the For the People Act, both of which have Senator Joe Manchin as a key player in determining their fate. On voting rights, Manchin has offered changes to the For the People Act, which Stacey Abrams has praised, saying she would absolutely support his new bill. And on infrastructure, 11 Republican senators and 10 centrist Democratic senators have signed on to a much smaller bill that does not raise taxes while failing to deal with the vital issues we face, like climate change, broadband, childcare for working families, and the electrification of transportation and a clean energy grid to power the future. Ryan Cooper, a national correspondent at The Week and the co-host of the At Left Anchor podcast, whose forthcoming book is How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics, joins us. We'll discuss how the Republicans are slaves to the greedy, short-sighted plutocrats who are their big donors and thus have no vision, while the Democrats are blind to the fact that they are facing their own extinction at the hands of an increasingly undemocratic and autocratic GOP bent on installing one-party government in the United States. Then we'll investigate further the infrastructure bills that range from ambitious to necessary to modest and useless and speak with David Dayen, the executive editor of The American Prospect, whose latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power, and latest article at The American Prospect is Everything You Need to Know About the Infrastructure Bills Traveling Through Congress. Then finally, we'll examine an important article in The New York Times by Thomas Edsel, Trumpism Without Borders, and speak with Jack Goldsmith, who is quoted widely in the article. He is a professor of public policy and a fellow at the Mercatus Center of George Mason University who chaired a National Academy of Sciences study on USAID democracy assistance and worked with the OECD and the state and defense departments on their strategies for fragile states. He joins us to discuss how Biden has the weight of the world on his shoulders to restore trust in democracy at home and abroad and help turn around the global trend towards ethno-nationalist and authoritarian governance. And joining us now is Ryan Cooper, a national correspondent at The Week, whose work has appeared in The Washington Monthly, The New Republic and The Washington Post, and he is the co-host of At Left Anchor podcast and the author of the forthcoming book, how are you going to pay for that? Smart answers to the dumbest questions in politics. And his latest articles at the week are America's backward climate politics are cooking the country and the corrupt reality of Joe Manchin's bipartisanship. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ryan Cooper. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, the two big bills that Biden is trying to get passed, Infrastructure and the For the People Act, both have... Joe Manchin as a key player in determining their fate. And on voting rights, Manchin has just offered up changes to the For the People Act, which Stacey Abrams has praised, saying she would absolutely support the new bill. And on infrastructure, there are 11 Republican senators now signed on with 10 centrist Democratic senators to a much smaller bill 
that doesn't raise taxes uh, while failing to deal with all the vital issues that we face in the future, like climate change, the need for broadband, the need to electrify transportation, the need for parents to have childcare so that they can work, all of the really forward-looking things that Biden has in the bill. So, and I might add that on the For the People Act, Ms. McConnell has already said that Manchin's changes are unacceptable. So there you have it. Yeah. Yeah, the, it's it's kind of an interesting sort of dance going on there. Because with the, I mean, with the voting rights stuff, which I would say is probably the more important of the two, what Manchin is suggesting is like kind of, I, I would say, includes more or less the core, uh, most important elements of the For the People Act, in particular, the ban on gerrymandering. And, um, you know, he would he would uh, require like like a national photo ID to vote. Um, but that's, a, you know, a kind of a giveaway that's that's probably fine, especially in, in re- with respect to the, uh, you know, the how much more important and powerful gerrymandering is a, as a tactic. You know, voter ID is really something that doesn't have much of an impact, you know, maybe not even any impact at all, according to some recent research. Um, and certainly it would be worth trading for a ban on partisan gerrymandering. And so that's why I think Stacey Abrams is saying that, like, that's a good deal, you know. And this is the first we've seen out of Joe Manchin for, you know, any as any sort of, like, substantive, like, preference. He says he doesn't support the For the People Act. And it was the question was, so what do you support? And here we're getting a sense, a sense of it, supposedly. But then the question goes to, well, are you going to, you know, support some sort of amendments to the filibuster to, uh, you know, get rid of uh, the, you know, be, allow that to pass. Because as you say, uh, McConnell, uh, McConnell's ruled out any kind of bipartisan deal. And Republicans don't want to ban on partisan gerrymandering because partisan gerrymandering is central to their whole strategy to get the House back next year. And uh, so it kind of remains to be seen what Manchin's like, what he's playing at with this, you know, it's like, is this a substantive preference? Is this some sort of a feint? You know, um, there was a recent call that was leaked to the intercept in which he was trying to basically get some sort of financial inducements to Republicans to get them to support the commission to investigate the January 6th riots. And he was saying that because if he can't get bipartisanship on then this commission, then that's like a good talking point for the left. You know, it's like it makes him look bad. And so, it, you know, if he were to get that or to get a bipartisan deal on infrastructure, it's kind of hard to see that he would support getting rid of the filibuster or amending it to pass voting rights protections. But he's so all over the place that it's really hard to tell just what he's trying to do or even if he ha- himself has a plan you know, for what he wants, because if he were to just say, you know, what it is and say that he's willing to get behind 49 other Democrats plus uh, Kamala Harris, he could almost certainly get that. But yeah, you know, without getting rid of the filibuster, it's uh, still a totally theoretical exercise. Well, it seems like Manchin is actually being educated in a way because the Democratic lawmakers from Texas who walked out of the chamber to stop this egregious Republican bill 
they have been on Capitol Hill, and on Wednesday, a number of these state senators from Texas, Democrats, met with Manchin, and he didn't know the extent to which the playing field has already been rigged in Texas, let alone this new outrageous bill. He didn't know, for example, that a student ID issued by the state of Texas doesn't allow you to vote, whereas a a gun license does. So he's changed his mind on a lot of stuff. So I don't know why he would be making these statements in support of the For the People Act being amended in this way without wanting it to happen. Why would he be doing that? Yeah, that's the that's the question. And my my kind of general sense is that he, he's basically just kind of a dippy guy. Like like he has this fetish for bipartisanship that comes out of like you know in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. You know, and that was just sort of like the way things were. Uh, and now it's like it hasn't been like that for decades. I mean, it, the the Senate has never functioned in a bipartisan fashion since he was elected. To, uh, himself in 2010, I believe. And so, yeah, I mean, the idea that you need to premise doing anything on voting rights or infrastructure on there being a bipartisan agreement between Democrats and Republicans is just profoundly diluted about <laughs> politics. And, you know, maybe there's some sort of corruption behind it, but I think that the, the like, he seems to have like a genuine emotional attachment to bipartisanship. And, yeah, and that speaks to perhaps the uh, the infrastructure bill that they're trying to get through, which, as you say, is is terrible. I mean, even worse than that, it's got a bunch of like basically selling off public infrastructure to like rapacious, you know, private developers. You know, like that, like Chicago did with its parking meters. You know, where you just have like toll roads and an incentive to starve out the the rail system so that everybody has to pay, you know, Goldman Sachs and nickel to drive anywhere you know, for, for a quarter mile. Um, and so the, this, you know, the argument from the left is that like, if we pass this, there's going to really sap the momentum to do anything else, you know? And it's like the, the, you can't just let the Republicans have the, the sweetest, lowest hanging fruit. And then the Democrats pass something on a party line basis. That's got all the tax hikes and everything. It's like, why don't we just do one big thing and forget the Republicans, their ideas are garbage anyway, but it's definitely going to be a slog. You know, you say you've got a bunch of it's not just Manchin in that case. There's a whole bunch of basically corrupt Democratic senators, Mark Warner, especially in Virginia, who are way more conservative than they have any, you know, a sensible justification for unlike Manchin. And so, yeah, it's going to be a big fight in that case just to see if if you can kind of keep the whole party on the same team instead of just trying to sneak through you know use this opportunity not to like fix climate change or whatever but to just like sneak through a bunch of goodies for the donor class and again i'm speaking with ron cooper a national correspondent at the week whose work has appeared in the washington monthly the new republic and the washington post he's the co-host of the at left anchor podcast and the author of the forthcoming book how are you going to pay for that smart answers to the dumbest questions in politics and his latest articles at the week are america's backward climate politics are cooking the country and the corrupt reality of joe manchin's bipartisanship and when you talk about the big donors of course We are a plutocracy with a democratic veneer. And if you look at at those 11 Republicans and 10 Democrats who want to 
do this modest infrastructure bill, I'm sure the one thing they all have in common is that they're satisfying their big donors. And these are the guys that don't have any vision. They're the greediest people on the planet. Uh, <laughs> they've got tons of money, and yet they want more of it. They were given this massive tax break by Trump, which is what the Republicans are fighting to hold on to. So, I mean, it's extraordinary that there's no understanding. And, you, and you've written about how the West is cooking in the Southwest as well this year with these massive droughts, which are going to get so much worse. And then, of course, the droughts, of course, lead to the fires. And we've already had some terrible fires here in California way before the fire season begins. So they don't want to deal with climate change. They don't want to deal with the fact that we need broadband desperately, and particularly in West Virginia, by the way. They don't yeah. want to deal with the need for working parents to have childcare, uh, and they don't want to deal with the fact that even GM, which is not exactly the sharpest modernistic automobile company, they're going to electrify their entire product line by 2035. Yet they don't want to deal with the need to put in infrastructure for electric transportation, etc. So this is the sad part. It's This is the American story, isn't it? That we're run by a bunch of short-sighted, greedy plutocrats. Yeah. Yeah, greed is definitely a big part of it. You know, you look at somebody like Mark Warner, you know, Virginia is, it barely qualifies as a swing state anymore. I mean, it's not like super solidly blue, but it's pretty blue. And, you know, Tim Kaine is a reliable party guy, you know, but Mark Warner is like the richest guy in the entire Congress. I think he's worth a quarter billion. And, you know, you just see him being whenever he gets a chance to hide behind bipartisanship in this way. It's just like, how do we funnel money into the just the pockets of the worst people in the country? And and I think also, you know. Corruption is one thing, but but I think that there's like a, a, a related but distinct aspect of politics that, that maybe doesn't get as much attention. And that's like the kind of character and, you know, the energy, decisiveness, courage, maybe for lack of a better word, of the political class. You know, because you could be corrupt. You could say, OK, I'm, I'm here to like stuff money in my own pockets and put money into the pockets of the people who elected me. But at the same time, you could say, well, hang on. You know, that's not the only thing that matters, maybe. You could theoretically have a, a you know, say, well, the, you know, if we're going to be able to be corrupt in future, to have money to be putting into our pockets then, then we need to preserve the United States as a going concern. And therefore, we need to invest all of, much, you know, money in all these infrastructure projects to green the economy and whatever. And in the, you know, in, in the process, hey, everybody gets a cut, you know. But that, like, for some reason, that isn't a calculation that 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 is is possible these days. And I think it just speaks to the incredible, yeah, short sightedness and the cowardice and just the fecklessness of moderate Democrats. Their lack of vision, you know, the the like. Or their desire to just hide under the bed at all times and hope that things will f work out by themselves, you know, and the Republicans show you that even if your ideas are incredibly unpopular and you yourself are crazy, you can get a tremendous amount of political success just with energy and determination and confidence and just always trying to move forward. And, you know, I think that the, the Democrats, you know, if they're going to successfully contest 
you know, Republicans for control of the country are going to need to find some of that energy, some ideas to unite around and some leaders who aren't just these washed up old fogies who won't fight for anything. Well, the writing's on the wall. The, the Democrats' hair should be on fire because they're going to be an extinct species and we're going to have a one-party state just like they have in yeah. Russia. The GOP is heading towards Putin's united Russia. They're absolutely unashamed of the fact that they'd rather cheat than compete. They are rigging the elect next elections so that they will win before a vote is cast through gerrymandering voter suppression. And then they get another bite of the apple because these Republican-controlled state legislatures will be able to count the vote and certify the vote. And then the, the third part of this strategy underway is to basically attack the neutral poll workers and election workers who they're driving out of the business half of the people that were involved in the successful 2020 election which was the had the biggest turnout in american history and even the toady attorney general william barr said it was completely clean they are driving poll workers away and they're going to replace these poll workers with these QAnon type whack jobs that are doing this bogus count in arizona so, yeah. welcome to American autocracy. It's staring us in the face. Yeah. And that, I think, also speaks to the, the, the lack of vision I was talking about. Because you look at somebody like Kristen Sinema. What's she aiming at? What's her long-term goal? She's not that old. She's like, what, 40-something, late 40s, early 50s, something like that? You know, she could have a long career in politics. It appears to me she doesn't. The You know, interest groups in her state, uh, you know, labor unions and stuff say they can't even get a meeting with her. Looks to me like she's aiming at the classic post office career of, you know, working as a lobbyist or a consultant, making tons of money basically as a like a sort of stooge to go and, and uh, lobby other Democrats in Congress. There won't be any need for people like that if Republicans set up a one party state, as you're suggesting, which is not at all out of the question. You know, you look at why why did Jeff Bezos, why did Amazon hire Jay Carney, former Obama press secretary and former Biden aide, to, to work as a top-level executive in Amazon? Well, it was his connections to Biden, a, f a probable form, a future president or, you know, at least party grandee who has a lot of influence. All those people will be totally cut out of the loop of political power. And so nobody on K Street will be hiring any of these, uh, you know, corrupt, you know, ex-liberal politicians. There won't be any of that gravy train they seem to be counting on. And it just strikes me as a total failure of imagination to think that it's like maybe we should just protect the democratic system so that we can keep this the, the, the money flowing. It's like they can't even imagine a different way. You know, it takes some idealism, at least a little bit, to be able to think like that. And it shows you that the folks like this, you know, they, it, they just don't really have it at all. Well, Ron Cooper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, glad to be, guys, to uh, join you. And again, I'll be speaking with Ryan Cooper, who's a NASA correspondent of the week, whose work has appeared in the Washington Monthly, the New Republic, and the Washington Post. He's the co-host of the At Left Anchor podcast and the author of the forthcoming book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest articles at the week are America's Backward Climate Politics Are Cooking the Country and The Corrupt Reality of Joe Manchin's Bipartisanship. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining further the infrastructure bills that range from ambitious and necessary to modest and useless. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Dayan, who is the executive editor of the American Prospect and the winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize. And he's the author of Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story. And his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And he has an article at the American Prospect, Everything You Need to Know About the Infrastructure Bills Traveling Through Congress. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Dayan. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And these bills are coming thick and fast. Now, Bernie Sanders is offering up a $6 trillion infrastructure bill and a bipartisan group of Democrat and Republican senators led by Kirsten Sinema and Rob Portman have come up with another one that has 11 Republican senators signing on and 10 conservative Democratic senators signing on. And Chuck Schumer is repeatedly insisting that uh, the infrastructure talks are on two tracks, with uh, the first being bipartisan, the second being one that will probably go through reconciliation. So I guess it's hard to keep up with them, but uh, what do you think? Exactly. Uh, that, that, I mean, that's the whole thing. Uh, I, I wrote uh, the story that you uh, referred to on Monday, and it's already somewhat obsolete. Uh, we We now have more details. We knew about this agreement between uh, the, the senators, we were aware that there was uh, 10, 10 senators on each side in play, uh, but we didn't know that reconciliation was moving forward and that Bernie Sanders would incorporate not just Joe Biden's American Jobs and American Families Plan, but also other things like lowering the Medicare age and some immigration measures and prescription drug price reform and things like that. So... Uh, the the problem is is that I'm not sure that there is a working majority for any of them. I mean, uh, some Democratic moderates have already come out against the Sanders plan. Uh, the progressives are very skeptical about this idea that you could pass a bipartisan bill with sort of so-called hard infrastructure like roads and bridges and airports and waterways uh, on a bipartisan basis and then come back later and do a Democrat-only reconciliation bill with everything that was left. Uh, they're skeptical that you'll get the second bill. They think it's Lucy with the football, that, that they'll just pass the first one, and Demo moderate Democrats will say, well, I don't want to pass the other one. And then we'll get stuck with just the, the uh, other uh, hard infrastructure elements. There's a, a group of, of Democrats who have said no climate, no deal. In other words, if they don't have serious climate-related measures in the bipartisan bill, they won't pass it. Uh, Sanders himself has said he's a no on the bipartisan bill. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said that what they could do is maybe hold the Senate bill in the House not pass it until they pass a reconciliation bill with the other measures and then pass everything as a team. I mean, it seems to me there's just not a lot of trust between progressives and moderates. Uh, uh, you're almost, it almost sounds like a hostage negotiation. Like you, we have to, we have to put down the guns at the same time. We have, we have to pass everything at once. Uh, and that's the only way we can be sure that everything will pass. Uh, so uh, a lot going on, but I think I think it reflects a basic lack of trust between the two wings of the party. 
Well, the Kirsten Cinema Rob Portman deal with the 11 Republicans and the 10 Democratic senators, that plan includes $579 billion in new spending, but it's paid for by repurposing unused COVID relief funds, imposing a surtax on electric vehicles, and expanding mm-hmm. the use of state and local funds for coronavirus relief. Well, the states are broke in this country. I don't know why they, you'd think they'd have funds for coronavirus relief the idea that you would put a surcharge on electric vehicles when you were trying to encourage electric vehicles i mean why we have you know why can't we tax gasoline like we tax cigarettes cigarettes will kill you but gasoline will kill the planet is it just i mean typically you're you're right Ian. i mean typically you tax something that you want less of you don't tax something that you want more of and for our, the future of our climate and our planet, we want more electrified vehicles from renewable sources and less fossil fuels in the atmosphere, uh, uh, increasing the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. So you're absolutely right about that. Now, uh, as far as money redirected from COVID relief funds, the Biden administration has already kind of ruled that out. I mean, that would be a reduction in overall macroeconomic policy. It would be a reduction in spending because if we were going to eventually spend those COVID relief funds on COVID relief, and then if you're taking them away, you're, you're, you're cutting the impact of that bill. Uh, there was money that was given to the states uh, and there were some some parameters around them. They could use them for affordable housing. They could use them for broadband deployment. Uh, if you're saying, okay, we're going to take that money back and say you can now use it for infrastructure, they already were able to use it for certain types of infrastructure, like housing infrastructure or or broadband infrastructure. So that that's a wash as far as I'm concerned. And the big thing, the big red flag to me in the revenue side of the Portman Cinema Bill is uh, what they call public-private partnerships. In other words, you get a private company to put up the money for the building of the infrastructure, but you give away the ownership and or management of that infrastructure. This is a recipe for toll roads all over the country. This is a recipe for the kinds of things like we saw in Chicago where they leased out the parking meters. And uh, predictably, the private company that now owns all the parking meters in Chicago has raised the price and uh, charged exorbitant amounts anytime you want to shut down a street for a street fair or protest or whatever, uh, uh, it's a terrible situation. And so we should be extremely concerned and in extreme opposition, in my view, to including privatization in in this infrastructure. It almost reflects this idea that, uh, you know, this very Reagan-esque idea that government isn't equipped uh, even to, to do the kind of public commons things of building... Uh, roads and, and, and water systems and things like that. They're, they're even saying now, no, uh, we need private enterprise to come in here and do that more efficiently. Well, they don't do it more efficiently. They do it in a way that gouges the American taxpayer uh, and gouges the American people for the use 
of the service when otherwise it was free. So uh, that's a real, real red flag. Well, clearly, raising the federal gas tax makes the most sense. But it's politically impossible, isn't it? Because legislators simply don't want to do it, right? They're, they're afraid of the backlash. And well, the I would say what makes the most, uh, I'm sorry, I, I would Go say ahead, what no. makes the most sense is raising taxes on the people who can afford it and who also use this infrastructure to a heavy degree, and that's corporations and the wealthy. I mean, when we initially had Biden's American Jobs Plan, he paid for it through a increase in the corporate tax rate, not even to the level where it was under Obama, but a midpoint between that level and the level that Trump brought it down to in the 2017 tax cuts. Uh, that, that, that seems to me completely sensible and the best way to, to get this paid for, because after all, if you have better built infrastructure in the country, you're going to be more efficient uh, from a commercial standpoint. And the businesses that use those roads, that use those bridges, that use broadband infrastructure, that use all of the things and that, that benefit from the human capital that, is, that will be improved if we do better caregiving support to people, if we increase uh, educational opportunities, things of that nature. Uh, corporations are going to benefit from all of that. And, and uh, right now, they're certainly not paying their fair share. And so that, to me, is the way that, uh, to the extent that you have to pay for this at all, that's the way that you could do at least some of it. And, and I personally think that the reward that you get out of improving the nation's infrastructure, uh, the, 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 the macroeconomic effect of that is uh, such a multiplier and is so beneficial that, that the idea that you have to pay for it up front is is a little spurious i mean this these, these are uh, you know we hear with when it's when it's trumpian tax cuts you hear that they pay for themselves and they don't but infrastructure is a situation where it really does in some way pay for itself and we shouldn't be so worried at a time of historically low borrowing rates for the united states we shouldn't be worried about the the long-run fiscal effect in 10 years that is that is hard to decipher anyway uh, when we're talking about filling the 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 deficits of infrastructure the deficit of uh, assistance for the poor the deficit of people not being able to go to college because they can't afford it all of those things are the real deficits in our economy uh, and and I think we should think less about the budget deficit so in the last minute just to sum it up the Republicans don't want to raise taxes on corporations and the wealthy, so they want to pay for it out of the highway funds and, and other leftover COVID funds, and they don't want to have to think anything to do with human infrastructure. Right. They just want bridges and roads and hard stuff, and they want to actually give that to the private companies to create toll roads. And the Democrats have a range of different proposals, starting with $6 trillion, and, of course, Biden himself... He started out at 2.3 trillion, then he went down to 1.7 trillion, and now Cinema and Portman are talking about 579 billion. So, um, <laughs> is that where we are? Anything to add in the last minute? Here? That's pretty much where we are. Uh, that is where we are, and and 
you know, it's hardly a compromise, right? I mean, I guess a compromise between zero, between doing nothing and doing what, uh, what Biden initially proposed, which was two bills, right? One focused on infrastructure, the jobs plan at 2.2 trillion, and the other, the family's plan, those who focus on human infrastructure at, at, at 1.8 trillion, that's a $4 trillion package. And here we have this bipartisan group offering one eighth of that. And that's supposed to be a, a, a wonderful compromise. I mean, there are real needs in this country. We have deferred this maintenance for decades and decades and decades. And there are so many varying needs from things that are climate related, things that are education related, things that are uh, related to the built environment that to, to say that, okay, we will give you one eighth of that. And by the way, we're going to turn those assets over to the private sector to run and maybe even own themselves. That does not seem to me like, like much of a compromise. And if it's a situation where, okay, you pass the bipartisan stuff on its own and then you do the rest in reconciliation, you know, maybe you could accept that, but there's just not a lot of trust there that you'll actually get to the second bill. You'll just stop at the first bill. And so Congress has a lot of work to do here, and there, there just isn't an environment of cooperation, it seems to me, uh, among Democrats that is looking too promising to getting this done, although Biden has said repeatedly that doing nothing is not an option. Well, David Dan, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Absolutely. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with David Dayan, who's the executive editor of the American Prospect and the author of Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story, whose latest book is Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And he has an article at the American Prospect, Everything You Need to Know About the Infrastructure Bills Traveling Through Congress. We can take a brief station break. We're back discussing how Biden has the weight of the world on his shoulders to restore trust in democracy at home and abroad and help turn around the global trend towards ethno-nationalist and authoritarian governance. I'm Dr. Bob, and I remember the 60s, sort of, sometimes, and I hope you do too. Back then we had go-go boots, air guitars, coffee houses, and lava lamps, plus lots of great music. Come join the fun this week on the WMNF 60s show, Saturday noon till 2 p.m., right here on WMNF Tampa or worldwide at WMNF.org. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jack Goldstone, a professor of public policy and a fellow of the Mercatus Center of George Mason University. He is the author of Revolution and Rebellion in the Early Modern World and editor of Political Demography and has authored or edited 10 additional books and over 140 book chapters and journal articles on various aspects of population, political conflict and social change. He's also chaired the National Academy of Sciences study on USAID democracy assistance and worked with the OECD and the United States State and Defense Departments on their strategies for fragile states. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Jack Goldstone. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Jack. And you've been quoted extensively in an article in the New York Times by Thomas Edsel, Trumpism Without Borders. And this is an article that deals with a global phenomenon of anti-labor fervor, political tribalism, racism, ethnic tensions, authoritarianism, inequality, and the possibility of a right-wing takeover of the United States by Donald Trump, which, of course, was attempted on January the 6th. So let's start with this notion of the ubiquity of loss, which covers both the right, the disaffected right, and largely the GOP in the United States, as well as in a number of Western democracies that are slipping away from the democratic camp, like uh, Poland and Hungary and other countries uh, like Britain, who had similar right-wing kind of governments in the ca- in the form of the Brexit government now in power in the UK. Well, the ubiquity of loss talks about the feeling that young people have growing up in a world that seems to have more competition and fewer opportunities, and the sense of loss that um, my generation has, people in their 50s and 60s, who feel the kind of easy path to security through a lifetime job uh, has been stripped away from them. Uh, And it's true, the, the world today is more competitive There are fewer secure lifetime jobs, whether it's in Japan or the United States. Unions don't protect people the way they used to. Companies um, are really trying to cut their expenses and keep their flexibility. So it is much more difficult. Uh, I even tell people, uh, don't even go into academics and think that if you become a professor, you'll be set for life. Nobody is set for life anymore. Uh, All employers are trying to reduce their costs, increase their flexibility, and that means the security uh, that a lot of people had counted on is gone. It's gone for them, it's gone for their parents, it's probably gone for their children. And unless they feel that the government is really going out of its way to help them step up and compete more effectively and get the resources they need, Um, they're going to feel not only lost, but abandoned, even betrayed. Uh, And that's a very dangerous feeling because it's something that politicians can grab hold of uh, in order to try and fire people up. Well, indeed, that's already happened, that the politics of lost have empowered the populist right with a new era of high grievance, high conflict and high ideology. Again, quoting from the article, and you're suggesting that, unfortunately, Global governance has been a great disappointment. Russia has basically, I can't use the word uh, on it, Uh, (laughs) Trump repudiated it and China sought to benefit from it by seeking to call the shots in old and new multinational organizations in which it has sought a leading role. Now, one of the other people that are quoted in the article, Jeffrey Sachs, is actually critical of what just took place at the G7 at NATO and I suppose by extension with the Putin-Biden summit. He's saying that it's utterly stupid, this new Cold War with China, which is a US concoction. How absurd to be focused on mobilizing the G7 to compete with China rather than on mobilizing the world to solve shared massive and urgent challenges. So, I mean, I think that's a pretty 
cogent point, isn't it? It's a point that has a partial truth. Okay. When mankind is facing global threats from pandemic disease or from rapidly changing climate shifts, it's vital for countries around the world to cooperate in meeting these global threats together. And to a reasonable degree, I think China is willing to adopt a positive approach on some of this. Now, I say some of this. Are they going to help us really find out the true source of the lab uh, or market or wild animal origins of COVID-19? I don't think they will be forthcoming and fully cooperative um, because there's a risk they could be seen, whether it's an animal source or a lab source, uh, the more we know about its Chinese origins, probably the more difficult it will be for China in the international stage. So they should cooperate, they won't. On climate, China will trumpet their contribution to uh, fighting global climate change by the actions they're taking to reduce pollution in China, but they're still going to try and make money by selling carbon uh, coal-burning power plants to countries in Africa and South Asia. So we'll get some cooperation, but I think uh, Sachs is uh, unduly optimistic if he thinks that simply uh, extending a hand and offering to go shoulder to shoulder with countries like Russia and China or even Brazil, uh, Turkey, and say, oh yeah, let's all fight global threats together is going to produce a come by moment. That's not in the cards. What's going to happen in the next 20 years is countries around the world increasingly pursuing their own national interest. We see that with Russia interfering in the Middle East and Ukraine and Moldova and Georgia and Belarus. We see it with China closing down the press in Hong Kong and trying to eliminate dissent within China while menacing Taiwan. We see Turkey pulling away from NATO and trying to expand its own direct influence in the Middle East. We see Brazil trying to uh, exploit the Amazon and, and turn a shoulder against COVID-19 and minimize the threat. So we're, we're nowhere near close to being in a world where you can simply appeal to common interests and produce uh, international cooperation. I think every country, like the United States, is going to have to search carefully for allies, build relationships that work, and be willing to stand firm against the cyber attacks, the opposing interest, and the threats that we will see from other countries. So, in a sense, uh, Jack, you're talking about the great struggle that we face now, which is the struggle between the encroaching authoritarian states and kleptocratic states and frail democracies. And I mentioned in Europe, uh, Hungary and Poland being less democratic. And, of course, we know that Putin's invested in right-wing parties in Western Europe and Russian money ended up financing Brexit to some extent with the largest donors and another shoe that's apparently going to drop now is that they'll be revealing soon in the UK that Boris Johnson got Russian money. So that's been going on and in the summit we saw a little bit of taste of Putin praising the insurgents on January the 6th perhaps as a way to signal to Trump that he's still on board. So the thing that I find most alarming now is that 
as much as we talk about our great democracy and, and Russia's authoritarian kleptocracy, our democracy is under absolutely clear and present threats. I mean, the GOP is heading towards mirroring uh, Putin's United Russia Party. I mean, they're, they're gerrymandering, suppressing the vote, so on election day they can win before any votes are cast, and then after the votes are cast, they then get to decide on the count and on certifying the votes via partisan Republican legislatures, and there's also a movement afoot to essentially drive experienced and neutral poll workers away from the elections. Their lives are being threatened, a half of them feel threatened, and they're quitting and they're going to be replaced by these kind of QAnon whack jobs that we see operating now in, uh, in this bogus recount in Arizona. So we have some serious problems here in terms of our own democracy. Would you agree? Well, you've summed it up very well. The frightening thing is that the Democrats in the United States uh, were accused of wanting to put a socialist uh, or an extremist in the presidency. And you know, the pointing was at Bernie Sanders or someone like him, Elizabeth Warren. In fact, the Democrats chose an experienced moderate who has been plowing the center ground of American politics for 40 years. And nonetheless, the Republican Party has treated Biden just as if he were an extremist, calling him a dangerous socialist, calling his programs a threat to America. So yes, um, and it's, I don't know if you saw the latest polling that showed Republicans have a higher favorability rating for Vladimir Putin than for Joe Biden. Uh, it's, it's a world turned upside down in terms of what has happened with Republican politics. And it's hard to comprehend, although one can capture a bit of it in this idea that people feel the ground is slipping away from them. They're experiencing this ubiquitous loss and they're kind of desperate for someone to hand them back the world that they found familiar, comfortable, secure. And the fervor with which they're willing to support uh, Donald Trump and even conspiracy theories is because those are comforting to people who feel the world has turned against them and don't have an easy way to fight back. They, the only way they have is to back a political party who they see as fighting against uh, everything that seems to be happening in the world today. Well, I don't know whether the inequality is inexorable, and we let's just learn from the ProPublica leak from IRS data of how the super-rich are getting richer than ever while paying less and less taxes than ever. But the people who are losing out, and particularly the younger generation, who are, are sort of stuck with the possibility of the gig economy and driving for Uber, well, in 10 years, AI will replace those drivers, those Uber drivers, and all the kids that are going to college now thinking, I'm going to be a coder, just like Mark Zuckerberg, well, in 10 years, AI will replace them. So the ubiquity of loss that we started out talking about, Jack, is going to get even worse, is it not? I think those forecasts are overdone. AI will replace some jobs, but it's not going to be um, the death of labor as people thought. I mean, 
if it if it were, if we all lose our jobs and we basically get cut a paycheck in order to uh, relax and enjoy our lives and not have to worry, you know, we have a Star Trek kind of future. Maybe that's not so terrible. But just think for a moment. Let's say you need a new washer and dryer. They're not going to be delivered remotely to your house um, <laughs> by drones. And even if an AI driving vehicle comes up to your home, you're still going to need people to haul those things off the truck into your laundry room basement, connect the gas and the water to them. And so there are still going to be critical jobs for people. And the service industries will simply grow. You know, rich people now can hire a custom consultant to help them pick their wardrobe. Well, some of that is being automated, but people will still want to have personal service for getting their nails done, getting their health checked, um, a variety of uh, you know task rabbit and personal assistant things. The human touch will become all the more valuable once artificial intelligence takes over the tasks that can be automated. And, and I still believe that artificial intelligence is a long way from capturing the plasticity, the originality, and the warmth of human interaction. So it'll be great if we have AI take over some unpleasant tasks, but I'm sure there will still be work for people. What matters will whether societies believe that we have a moral obligation to ensure that those who do lose their jobs or those that don't have the capacity to earn the incomes that they used to are somehow given an alternative path forward and not simply cast aside. So let me just quote some of what you have said in this article by Tom Edsel in the New York Times, Trumpism without borders. And we just talked about our plutocracy with a democratic veneer and whether how long that's going to last. And you quoted saying, Joe Biden literally has the weight of the world on his shoulders. If he succeeds, success meaning carries out a program that improves the living standards and earns the support and respect of a large and stable majority of the population. He can advance global cooperation on key problems, restore trust in democracy at home and abroad, and help turn around the global trend to ethno-nationalist, global trend towards ethno-nationalist authoritarian governance. If Biden fails, God help us, we are headed back to the world of the 1930s with steep political polarization, ethnic hatreds and cleansings, powerful anti-immigrant sentiments and spreading fascism. So there's the, there it is in as stark as it can be. Well, the thing is, yes, those are the two directions we could go, but I don't think either direction is yet fixed and technology is not going to be the deciding factor. Let me take you back to the 1930s. In Germany, in the 20s and 30s, there was a period of economic prosperity under Weimar. Jewish families, like my own, had been well integrated into the economy and into the life of cities across Germany. But in the late 20s, um, there was a burst of ruinous inflation, and in the early 30s, uh, the global depression hit Germany hard, and people were willing to listen to a message of hate from Adolf Hitler, who told people uh, a bunch of lies. These lies were 
that the Jews are uh, an evil, dangerous race that's going to uh, destroy and undermine Germany and that Germany has to stand up for itself and uh, overturn these agreements with the victors of World War I who had imposed, uh, unfortunately, high reparations. And the message was, make Germany great again, if, if I am not going overboard in saying that. Now, bring us forward to where we are today. What's happening in America? Well, immigrants are well integrated into American life. Uh, people of all colors, religions, and faiths are intermarrying, living together, especially any large city in America is a rainbow of diversity and economic progress. But it's possible to lie to people and say, America is a white European country and needs to stay that way. And immigrants from Mexico or the Middle East are criminals and terrorists who are out to destroy us. If there's an audience for that kind of uh, hateful talk, then you can go down the same kind of road that not only Germany, but France, Norway, other countries that became fascist in World War II, all drifted in that direction. People turning their frustrations into hatred of minorities, foreigners, or immigrants. Unfortunately, that potential is in our nature as human beings. We are prone to fears and prone to manipulation. Now, the counter to that is removing the conditions that make people feel anxious and fearful, which makes them vulnerable to those kind of verbal manipulations and lies. Uh, that's why I say if you know Biden is successful with these plans for infrastructure, child support, broadband, job creation, that can reduce the uh, fertile ground of anxiety and loss in which these hatreds take root. So I very much hope he is successful. This is WMNF Tampa, 88.5 on the left side of your dial. Stay tuned for NPR News and then Midpoint with Janelle Irwin.